Oh, we got it working. Amazing. Okay. And it's still working. Welcome, everybody, to the Culture of Life podcast. We're having a couple of um, technical difficulties, but now it looks like we are back in the game. And I am here um, with Dr. William Loinger, PhD, at uh, Chestnut Hill College, where he teaches. Right. Thank you, Professor, for giving us some time to talk about uh, some very deep and interesting issues. And we're going to start out with something light. So it is, how do we ground morality without God, mm-hmm. if it's possible, <laughs> and if so, how do we do so? So, shoot. <laughs> right. So, you know, very important uh, question. Can we ground morality without God? Um, you know, and I'd say among analytic philosophers, the dominant view is that God does not exist, but objective morality does. So most analytic philosophers, they do think you you can uh, get objective morality without God or that it exists. Um, but yeah, I guess there's, there is this question about how, how that, how that works. Um, like, so C.S. Lewis in the beginning of mere, mere Christianity, um, you know, I think it's chapter one, the he begins with morality right. as and the sort of evidence of Christianity, right? Exactly, because he doesn't seem to think um, ontological argument works, design arguments work, um, cosmological argument. He se- he seems to think the way in is through uh, the reality of the moral law and then realizing that it's not a physical thing and doesn't fit into um, physical reality in the way that the natural sciences uh, study things. And then he thinks, so once you're that far, you've got this question, how could there be this non-physical thing that obligates us, that we're supposed to align our lives with? Um, I mean, and it, I think that's that's sort of the million-dollar question when it comes to this issue. Because if it does exist, if there really is an objective moral standard, it's not it's not a physical thing. It's not something you could see with your eyes or touch with your hands. You can't go visit it. It's not like Disney World. <laughs> um, so there is this question, well, where, where would it be if it really exists? And how would we mentally get in touch with it if it really exists so some people you know like Mackey, jl Mackey. uh i don't know if you know yeah, who he had, is yeah Andrew. i'm familiar with him okay so he has i think he's a famous atheist right? famous atheist and in the 1970s wrote a book inventing right and wrong in the first chapter he argues that there isn't objective morality like it doesn't exist uh it's a kind of um illusion uh it's like Richard Dawkins' position, all the new atheists. Sort yeah, of I, you know, I have not, I read The Blind Watchmaker, but I don't know if I know Richard Dawkins' views on, on morality. But, um, yeah, I think that the idea, you know, in that, cha- in, in chapter one, in Inventing Right and Wrong, Mackey doesn't talk that much about evolution, but he does think what's happened over time is that we've come to believe that there's an objective moral standard that tells us that, you know, rape is wrong, stealing's wrong. Um, and he thinks these are really just cultural customs that get ingrained in society. And then we think those are objective moral truths. Right. Um, so if there's rape in some kids, some in some African village or some Asian village or some uh, European village, that's just, that's okay. They just have a different view. Yeah, they might have, <laughs> they might have ingrained <laughs> a different belief. And then... They're not wrong per se. Right. They're not wrong per se. I mean, he would 
I'm sure Macchion and he makes this distinction between your own first order individual views and then these like meta ethical more abstract views at so a like second I'm personally order. against abortion but as a politician the Mario Cuomo I'm personally against but as my as a public servant yeah. I can't impose my It's not quite view. like that but so like I think what Mackie would say you know sir, with rape he would say I'm opposed to rape um, or slavery he'd, he'd be opposed to it at a personal level but then he'd say at a meta ethical level if he's pressed and said so is it objectively wrong to rape somebody um, is slavery objectively wrong he'd say no I mean I'm against it right but it's not objectively wrong because nothing's objectively right or objectively wrong. He, right, he right. thinks there just is no objective moral standard. So any any moral beliefs that we have, he thinks we're trying when we make moral claims to reference an objective moral standard. But that standard isn't there, so all the claims are false. Got it. So what is he? What is he? I didn't read the book. I mean, I'm only yeah. familiar with him. Not I haven't read his stuff. I've heard other people talking about him. What does he try to do? Okay, so if. If it's not objective, do we? I mean, he does. He does. He. <laughs> how do we live our lives? Yeah. After what do that? we do? Like, wh- how do we? Well, do we I mean, that's rules? a great question, and it could be that I'm just dense because he wrote the rest of the book, right? right. And the rest of the book actually makes a lot of moral claims. Right. Um, uh, but he'd say none of them are objectively true. It's more just him expressing his, his, his personal opinions that he accepts, um, and then. But he thinks. It's, this is what sometimes when people don't believe in objective moral truths, they'll say, well, but on pragmatic grounds, we it can works. have these arguments and it works and so on. Or evolutionary. <laughs> yeah, like sometimes he references evolution. Um, but I, I guess I always, when somebody says, well, on pragmatic grounds, this works, I, I, maybe I'm just too much of a realist about truth and about correspondence theory of truth where I just sort of, I get lost in what they're saying. I, it it right. just doesn't compute for me. Right. And I I very well could be wrong. Like I could just be missing something. Right. Um, but that's and the correspondence theory would be that the idea that truth is a correspondence of our mind to reality. Essentially, yeah, exactly. there's the ability to do that. This sort yeah, of so more classical traditional a more view. classical view. Yeah. So if we say stealing is wrong or slavery is wrong, the idea would be that there's we have a belief in our minds when we say that, and that belief corresponds to some standard of morality that really exists somewhere i don't you know who, it's it's not a physical thing but it exists in the so same way numbers or math yes right exactly. and those things correspond to reality we, you right. bet your life on it when you get into planes or yes sit underneath buildings there are people that made calculations that yes uh, hopefully the planes don't fall out of the sky you're betting yeah. your life on it so you do believe in immaterial reality to yes. a certain extent and our ability to use our minds to do that and you so would these would in general, do these do atheists? I mean, I guess the the one claim that were the easiest thing to think about is just okay. Well, they don't they don't want any moral system if it exists to have a claim on them on their life because there's a real reason for them not to want that because then it will have a claim on their behavior. So it's just easier to ignore it when they're happy to accept mathematics. They're happy to accept other yeah. sort of immaterial claims to their on their life yeah so i mean it would depend on which which one we're talking about which person let's say like Mackie with um two plus two equals four he he says in that chapter on objective morality not existing that he thinks numbers can be given an empirical grounding um i don't know how he works that he doesn't work it out there Got um it. but 
most you know most atheists in in analytic philosophy they're not like Mackey. most of them actually think there is an objective moral standard um and that they really are obligated uh in some sense that goes beyond just them and their personal opinions and personal views to live in accordance with this standard and they would say slavery you know it really is objectively wrong and so on and they have to align their lives with that now the question for them though it's different than with Mackey because Mackey can he can say there just is the physical world and it's talk, all matter in motion yeah it's all matter in motion and then but if if you don't say that uh if you're an atheist who does believe in an objective moral standard and you admit that it doesn't seem to quite fit into the physical world well, then there's a question. I mean, some, some won't admit that. They'll try to give a naturalistic grounding for objective morality. Um, Do you know how they go about doing that? I know this well, is not are, your position, but... No, no, no. Yeah, there are different ways to try to do it. Um, one, I think the best way to do it is somebody like Relton, Peter Relton, who, if you can reduce well-being to mental states. Right, like, right. Subjective well-being. Right? Yes. Sam Harris that makes this move as well. Does the same he? Okay. Thing, the same thing. Sort of like it's well-being, the human well-being is the standard of morality. Right. If you period. could get well-being down to mental states, somehow either reduce it to pleasure and pain or desires or a combination of the two, then you're, you know, and then you can think of mental states as somehow a function of brain states. Um, then it doesn't seem like with well-being, at least, you're adding anything more than what's physical. So you're because you're basically reducing well-being to making it a function of brain states. Good. But then, so you know, if well, we had a diode on your brain and we could measure your <laughs> sort of serotonin or dopamine like that. combination, we would know you're in the state of well-being. Right. And therefore, what what you know, you're sort of acting in a way that's in accord with human well-being and whatever you're doing there is right so it's good pull, pull that off then you know the next step an extreme would, but just a yeah the next step would be then once you've got well-being reduced to mental states which are somehow a function just of brain states then if you could then get the transition from that to morality you know utilitarians often will do it they'll say well maximizing well-being is what's right and in saying that we're not going beyond well-being which reduces to mental states very far because we're just relying on this idea of bringing about as much good as we can or um i mean i think it does go beyond uh uh like i think they are loading something in there um because like sidgwick thought this even with utilitarianism there's some kind of intuitional view uh the fundamental principle of utilitarianism that rightness equals maximizing well-being in the world that's not itself so a it, physical it, it resolves to a uh, to an objective morality even utilitarianism <laughs> ultimately resolves to it yes they view it as an objective morality yeah yeah but it's one that mo- most of the work is done by the subjective mental states of well-being and so they're not adding much to their view of what's real um, cause again, those mental states, you could reduce them to brain states, ideally anyway, right, sure. on this view. So they're not loading in much more to reality than just the brain states. So I think that's, if, if I were an atheist, um, then I think I would be someone like Peter Re- or accept a view like his, where you try to get yeah, well-being to reduce to mental states, which reduce to brain states and then view morality. Yeah. Probably in utilitarian terms. 
where it's just so we max- maximize those. Yeah, you maximize those. So brain we can states. take any particular activity. Rape, for example, yeah. obviously is very traumatic to the woman. Right. Therefore, yeah. it it Wrong. violates her mental state, dopamine level. Perfect. Right. Yeah. And then she. So therefore, it's bad. Okay, give me something else. Throw something else at me. Murder. Okay, murder. Obviously. Yeah. Like. Yeah, you people. see the mental states going right. in the wrong direction. Right, exactly. And that's so that's the yeah. best way. I think the, the Sam Harris does the same thing. The question yeah. is is um and what okay, so what is your what is your problem with that? If that if that if Oh, if, if I find that intuitive. Yeah, cuz I do find it somewhat convincing, so why don't I accept it in the end? I guess so you know, then you have to think Sounds about reasonable. Yes, yeah, so it does good. sound reasonable. And if you're trying to yeah, fit ethics into a naturalistic view of the world, it, it does. It makes sense. I guess I just always, this is not original to me. This is just a lot of people, when they look at the well-being literature, they um, worry that if it's hedonism, for example, so if it's just reducing well-being to pleasure and pain, they, they think that's too narrow a range of goods. We need... Uh, there are just more things that 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 add to well-being than pleasure, and there are more things that reduce well-being than pain. Like, so standard example involves the experience machine. Um, right, right, sure. I've heard I've heard this discussed. If you get into the machine, yeah. you feel good. You feel good, but it seems like the people on the machine life, even though they have more pleasure than those of us out here in the real world, um, they don't seem better off. Mm. It seems in like what way? Wh- what way are they not better off in your view? Well, I mean, no they're feeling good. You're, they're they're maximizing this brain right. state that we're all trying to maximize. Right. At the only cost being, it's not real, right? Is that the that's the thought yes. experiment? Right. So wh- if you so I guess for everybody, if you don't know what this thought experiment is, it's the idea of you have this experience machine. You can go into it and you'll feel good basically yeah. all the time. These high states of feeling good but it the at the cost of it's not reality you're removed from reality yeah. it's not real it's a it's a simulation of it's a, it's like a virtual reality machine that's so good that you don't even know it's a virtual right, right, reality right. machine right and usually the choice the way we present it usually is stark so that you either have to plug in for your whole life or not at all because if it were you could plug in you know every once in a while once in a while most of us would right. you know if you're having a bad day obviously why wouldn't you yeah, why, why wouldn't, wouldn't you? so it's like a whole, is, would your whole oh that's interesting i never yeah, heard that keep piece. it stark nozick allowed people to come off every once in a while um he was worried about technology and new experiences not being able to be put in the catalog that you'd live out but yeah, the going off and on, it makes it too confusing to think about. So. Right. Hey, I'm having a bad day. I'll just jump into the experience <laughs> machine for an hour. I'll feel better. I'm and then sick. I'll get back out. I'm sick. I don't feel right. So so it's either, a tr- in your view, it's the best, the best, um, the purest way of, the, of that thought yeah. experiment is you have to choose. Do you want your life to feel good but be fake? Right. Or do you actually want to live a, hum- a real human life? Yeah. So that's how most philosophers present it today. And then when it's put in that stark way... I mean, I have had students tell me they would plug in, um, but that's rare. Most people, I don't know, anecdotally for me, it's at least 80% would not plug in. And the main reason is they want more in life than just to feel good. They want, like, so think of your relationships, people you know and love and so on. I mean, in some ways, the machine life you you could script it out so that you never fight with them and they're none none of the painful um it's elements. All good. So no in, bad. S- in some ways that would be 
you know, better than real life. But once you start thinking about it in more detail, you're like, no, that I, that's not what I want. I I want actually to be with my you know wife or my kids or right. or whatever, even if you know it's not always perfect because. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. There's some. There's something that's that's you, by you, its nature human. Yeah, that, that's that's so interesting. So, the atheist. Okay, to just to 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 pull back for a second. So, the atheist view, or the let's say the most defensible in your view, um, ethical grounding or moral grounding would be, look, we're going to take our brain states. We are going to be able to objectively measure that human flourishing is related to well-being in the form of uh, positive brain states let's say correct and any activity that is not based on that and that's pretty you know nobody likes to get raped anywhere so that's right. objective i mean right. there's not going to be a woman that's going to say oh yeah only let me get beaten and raped like yeah. that's never going to happen so we have an objective standard in a yeah. certain way is that is that the case or is it, is there one level of j- objectivity that i'm missing there or is no that that's i mean i think that's you know, m- it depends on which atheist philosopher who believes in objective morality we're talking about. But I guess I personally think that's the right starting point Got if it. you're an atheist and trying to get objective morality. You start with a subjective view of well-being and then you build out from there. And you try to load in as little as possible when you make the switch to morality. Because the more you load in, the harder it gets to believe. What, what do you mean load in? Load in, I mean like, so say you're... <laughs> hardcore deontologist and you believe there's this real moral law that issues the it's these rules and they're they're a whole set it's not like utilitarianism where there's just one absolute unbreakable rule you think there are the greatest good for the greatest number right because then that's just one principle you're loading in um and it's a principle where most of the content is actually referring to well-being and if you have a subjective view of well-being then you're not yeah, I keep saying loading it. I know it's vague. This is like when students look at me and they're like, what is he talking about? <laughs> um, but my you point is there's just one principle if it's utilitarianism. It. And the principle itself is mostly about maximizing well-being, which itself it. could be understood in terms of brain states. Got so you, you're not viewing reality um, as having much more than matter. Um, or physical brain things. state. So it's a it's a yeah. brain versus mind idea. Yeah, we, just, we can just this is like you have this yeah. this clump of stuff in here. Yeah, it fires off certain stuff. If we can yeah. measure it, therefore that's objective. Yeah, it's measurable, exactly. scientifically measurable. Yeah, that's objective. What's well, more objective than that? And measurable in physical terms. Right. And now there are plenty of atheists that are not utilitarians uh, that would be deontologists and realists about morality, like believe in objective morality. That's where I find it less plausible because um, I feel like even though they, they're right, they just don't know why they're right. Right. Yeah. No. In some ways, I admire them more because I think they have the correct view because I am a deontologist. Right. I think they have the correct view of morality. And, and I, a deontologist. A deontologist. Well, so utilitarians think rightness equals maximizing well-being right. in the world. And that's just that's the one primary principle. Um, and then deontologists would say. No, there are pl- like a there are a bunch of rules. Um, you know, no a moral sti- realist. Yes, they'd be. Yeah. They'd say no, no killing innocents, um, no rape. You should help others. You should keep promises and so on. Now, the way they conceive of those rules and the way they interact would be different among different deontologists. Um, some are more stern or absolutist about the rules um, whereas some are a little more lenient and allow exceptions in various cases Um, but they're all at one in rejecting this view of rightness as 
bringing about as much good as you can. Got it. Um, because I think the the obvious objection to the um, to the mind state piece is that you can get pretty pumped up at a Nazi rally. Oh, so you can get yes. you can you can yeah. feel pretty good. I mean, those people weren't going around uh, right. Hitler. At yes. the, I mean, they were they were feeling good. They were yes. They were. So that's the uh, and then this gets into her great uh, interview uh, with um, Professor Jennifer Frey and uh, this debate of it was talking about happiness and they were saying so what the modern view of happiness not just morality but yeah. happiness is subjective well-being yes if you feel good you're yeah happy. that's happiness right whereas she was bringing back the more traditional classical view right. which is no there's really no difference between happiness and goodness essentially mm. so happiness is really goodness you have to live a morally uh, sort of virtue ethic yeah. you have to live a morally upright life and by the way if you do that the Aristotelian would hold, you'll probably feel good most of the time. Right. So, like, that's your best chance to actually feel good. But that, the feeling good piece isn't mm -hmm. what you're after. That's a, that's a knock-on effect, yeah. if you will. It's super beans. Well, yeah. Of acting in accord with reason. Yeah. And in accord with the kind of thing that you are. Right. So, yeah, so with eudaimonia and Aristotle, there, yeah, there are always these debates about how best to translate it. Some people, the most common translation is happiness. Um, and a lot of people view happiness as just the same as well-being, like they're perfect synonyms. Um, whereas others, you know, they'll say, no, that doesn't seem quite right. And, you know, and then there's a debate about the terminology. But yeah, I guess Jennifer Fry, it sounds like her view is something like the goal. It sounds like she has an Aristotelian objective view of well-being and um, pleasure isn't the aim. You you aim at other things like friendship and virtue. Yes. And then pleasure falls in or supervenes as a sort of secondary Sometimes. effect. Yeah. But it's yeah, it's not like a perfect correlation or a tight correlation. Um, yeah. No. And that that was that that's what Aristotle. <laughs> right. That's what he thinks. And uh, yeah, no, and, the, and many objectivist theorists in the well-being literature there, many of them are Aristotelians, and that's sort of their view, their view too. Um, and I find that pretty plausible. Uh, I, I kind of vacillate back and forth between that sort of view of well-being and a hybrid view where it's that view combined with a desire, a desire-based view. What is um, the desire-based view? Well, okay, so a desire-based view would be, I mean, the, the core idea is simple. It's that getting what you want is is the key to well-being. Um, you know, one of the... Regardless of what you want, like even if you what you want is disordered? Well, that's the <laughs> that's the main <laughs> objection to the view is that sometimes what we want is, is, is off. So, yeah, I mean, your Nazi rally example, uh, if somebody wants to be at a Nazi rally, wants to hear Hitler speak, wants to get pumped up about that. Yeah, it seems like there's something amiss. Uh, and, yeah, so it doesn't seem like fulfilling that desire really does benefit them. Um, now, there are ways desire theorists try to amend their theory to make it more plausible. Sometimes they'll say it's not getting what you want, it's getting what you want yourself to want. Hmm. That wouldn't help with the Nazi rally example. It would help with like smoking if you right, right. want to smoke, but you'd rather not be a smoker anymore. So, like I used to dip. Um, uh, it's like tobacco. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I'd a big fan. Have that 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 sensation or feeling of 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 wanting to do it, but then also just being sort of 
Yeah. Disappointed. I'm a smoker, big, big fan. Yeah. Big fan of tobacco. <laughs> so Ex-smoker, love it, but yeah. miss it. Um, Pine for it, but. They have other ways of trying to fix the theory. Like, th- th- sometimes they'll say it's not what you you want, it's what you would want if you were better informed. Ah, okay. Like, so say it's a job, and ahead of time you do want it. Like, you think it's going to be good, and then you, you get it, and you're it's not quite what you thought it would be. You're disappointed. The Buddhists kind of have a view of this where it's sort of like you, you're messing up because your consciousness just isn't at the level where you want the right things. It's not your fault, really. Yeah. It's just your mind isn't there. Okay. So you're lost on these, like, lower levels of consciousness, and yeah. on those lower levels of consciousness, like, yeah, that's what, you were, that's what you're going to want. When you ascend... Yeah. So there's no almost, but my problem with that is like there's no need for forgiveness. Then it's like no, you uh, most of the time we're conflicted. Mm. Like there is this conscience. Maybe good to go back to circle back to C.S. Lewis. Yeah. There is this conscience, this parochial. The Christians would call the parochial vicar of Christ in the soul, right? You. Ha- oh yes. Part of us yes, know. Yes. yes. Yeah. And because if there is, this is we haven't talked about. This, if there is an objective morality. Yeah. Part of the evidence of that is that we sort of know when we're doing wrong. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. It's hard to not unless you're a sociopath. That's like right. a, almost everybody's like, yeah, I shouldn't do that, but I'm going to do it you anyway know. because it feels good because I want it. Yeah. So there is this like inherent tension. And then the next question is, OK, well, if there's an in, in, or if th- is that internal conscience, is that just your society, your mom told you something, your dad or whatever right. society? Or is that deeper? Is that more like mathematics? Which is that mm. you are naturally intuiting yeah. as a moral animal, let's say. Right something real about the world yeah. um, through this. No, and that's well put. And I think it's, you know, personally, I think it's the latter, but that's not surprising. I'm, <laughs> I'm Catholic. Right, sure. You know, but um, yeah, I think there are a few different questions that arise here. One, assuming objective morality is real um, and that we, our minds can, can and do access it, then yeah, it would seem like we do know what's right and wrong um and then i guess the question is so we know it but then why do we sometimes do the wrong thing um sometimes i guess there's no puzzle we we know we know that it's wrong but we do it because of weakness of will or or, you know like slavery for example say the slave owner knows it's wrong but the the money is too much um and which I think happened with some of, you know, I think with Thomas Jefferson this month, because he seemed to have known it was wrong, but he still right, did right, it. He just did it anyway. Seemed like it was weakness of will. Like he just couldn't stop himself because of the um, financial benefits. Right, it was just too much on the upside. Yeah. Of his, so his there, head. there's not, I don't think there's that much of a puzzle because he, he, the, we can say objective morality is real. He knew it. It was in his mind. Um but what's more puzzling is the cases where the person doesn't seem to know it's wrong. Like, it seems like there were some Nazis that were so convinced um, that they actually thought the Holocaust was was right. Now, maybe maybe at some level. The Jews weren't people. They're just vermin. Right. Yeah. And therefore, so, yeah. they're just confused. Yeah, so what was going on? Is it that they knew that killing innocent people is wrong, but then they didn't count the Jewish people as full people <laughs> right <laughs> so the I, arguments they were making yeah that is they would dehumanize and then see so yeah, that was their way of they tra- have tubercular they're, they're they're spreading disease amongst the volk right. they're doing the wrong you know so they're sort of like they're an active they're again the jews are harming the well-being of our body politic because they are right. x y and z they're sick 
they're spreading disease amongst our Aryan population. Right. They're degrading it in various ways. So for the glory of the of our civilization and the coming of this uh, thousand year Reich, we've got to you know our well being depends upon yeah. them being exterminated. Yeah. So let's do that in the most efficient way possible. Yeah, and if that's the right explanation, which seems, I mean, if you read some of those speeches from Himmler, that that basically is what he says. So I think, yeah, if that's what's going on, that they know the principle uh, of objective morality that says killing innocent humans who count as full humans is wrong. Um, but then they just have some distorted view of who some counts. Some utilitarian as view also is like, well, the greatest, <laughs> yeah, okay, it sucks <laughs> yes, to kill these right. Jews, yep. but the greater good yeah. is the glory of, of Deutschland. The yeah. greater good is the yeah. survival of a, of, a, of a higher race because clearly in right. the world of, because you know, they're, they're, they're into eugenics and they're into uh, right. social, Dar- this sort of Darwinist idea. Well, yep. look, I mean, we didn't, hate the game not the player like we didn't <laughs> we didn't make up this whole you know survival of the fittest thing yeah but clearly it's a thing and clearly we're more fit than them so it's so you know we have to eliminate them or else they're going to impose their unfitness yeah. upon our body politic and we can't have them interbreeding with our beautiful you know aryan oh women God. and we can't have them yeah i remember i went with one time to the, I mean, I've been to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. a couple times, but I remember once I went, I think it was actually Alex Proust, he's a philosopher at Baylor, this was a long time ago, and um, when he was at Georgetown where I was a grad student, but I remember it was like a special exhibit, and I remember looking at their the racial hierarchies that the Nazis believed in. It was unbelievable. <laughs> they The way they would present it was as though it were science, right? Um, you know, obviously it was you know bad science and false science, but it was amazing the way it was presented as though it were yeah like straightforwardly dryly factual and yeah, so on it's, it's, crazy. it's scary you know well i mean i think um well there's a couple of things now it's sort of uh i don't know what your thoughts are on this this is controversial but i would say um that there's a similar attempt to dehumanize the unborn which is a with yeah. very similar kind of si- qu- qu- sort of quasi scientific reasoning where no I know where's this I kind know. of like hiding of oh well we won't call it a child we'll invent these sort of scientific words that make it sound yeah. like it's anything but a living human yeah. organism because we want to we don't we want to be rid of it we don't want it yeah the so terminology can be dehumanizing sometimes the yeah the, the well it's fetus, fetus or it's yeah. an embryo or it's yeah. sort of you know it's sort of like well we're doing the same i mean what's that's we're, we're making hierarchies we're right. once again going into the splitting of humanity yeah. into those worthy of life and those unworthy of life and then we're using some we're using whatever tool bag whatever's in our tool bag if it's sort yeah. of this kind of obfuscation of the language where we're yeah. getting yeah well it's just it's choice and it's it's an embryo it's not really oh okay maybe it's alive but it's not really a person yet because it doesn't have consciousness right. or whatever so there's a lot of um i don't know there's to me it seems it seems rather similar to me it's not yes. racial though it's not racial no it's not racial and i don't think the motives on the pro-choice side are as um well I sh- maybe because I, I don't know the motives on the Nazi side, but they when I look at them now, maybe this is just because I'm sitting here in 2024 and we we all agree it was completely evil. Right. Um, I just think they had no good motives. <laughs> right. 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 Whereas 
I pro choice there is a real there's a hey yeah. bodily autonomy she, it's her right. body I mean, and they're worried about women and what they right. go through and, right and right and so there's there's competing goods yeah i think the mo- so most of my friends who are pro-choice who i know I, I respect them i think their motives are good they do use the dehumanizing language i think that's because well i think it's what you're talking about with this we there's the conscience and it gets you and then you know that and then you're stuck and you so you, you use to, you have to yeah. some kind of distancing language because you want to get out of yeah, the, the jews aren't really people in right. the same way that we are and yeah. the same with the slaves the black people yeah. black people aren't really people they look like people right you but they're different in these in these particular ways and right. that's always the move necessary in order to kill or to enslave yeah. or to take away their rights you would have to do that and in a way that's an argument for for the conscience because they know it. That's why you have. That's yeah. why this sort of uh, this voluntarism takes over. Where it's like mm. I just want it to be this way. So I'm going to sort of take that as my primary principle, and then sort of gather around a bunch of crazy scientific theories, or you know, ignore obvious yeah. reality, obju- ob- ob- ignore reason, yeah. just because I want it to be so. I want to kill the Jews, or I want to. Um, not be having uh, this uh, baby, or I want to use the labor of these particular people because right. it's uh, pretty profitable. Yeah, you know. So, yeah, it is interesting what we do. I mean, I know I do it. Uh, you know, I rationalize things in my mind and I describe things so that then I can. <laughs> yeah, right, it's, it's part of the yeah the human condition. Did you ever see that movie, The Big Chill? No. There's this line in the, in the movie The Big Chill where he says, rationalizations are more important than sex. And the guy says, <laughs> what are you talking about rationalizations? Sex is pretty important. He says, yes, but you can't get through a day without a good rationalization. That's well, true. It's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> no, I mean, I have to live with myself, right? So, yeah. That's right. That's funny. So, yeah. uh, to, but okay, so to, to, to go to the, I'm curious about your students because I don't inter, I'm, you know, I don't teach, so I don't interact with a lot of uh, young people today. Yeah, right. And I'm curious what your view of their view of mm. morality is. Um, okay. Yeah. Where, yeah. And, and what have you seen over time? Because you've been a teacher here since 2011 yeah. and you've <laughs> taught for a couple of years before that. So you've seen me. Yeah. I mean, usually when I'm doing a standard ethics course, it's like half theory and then half applied issues you know the applied issues it's not going to be much different than what you see in the wider society you're going to see a lot of disagreement a lot of strong um views but also at the same time this sort of hesitancy to tell other people they're wrong right the um, non-judgmentalism you know, is yep. the first yeah principle. which i think is because you know we don't want to hurt other people we don't want to be um you know, because we know if we disagree, it makes people uncomfortable and it hurts them. And so, you know, in some ways there's a good motive behind it. But then in other ways, yeah, it's worrisome because we do need to lay the disagreements out. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to make any any progress in understanding each other. Um, at the level of theory, um, well, I guess here would be an example. So say they're writing essays for me right now on whether an objective moral standard exists. Right. Um, I think you know most in the end they end up arguing that one one does. I mean, I'm grading those essays right now. The example I use for this particular essay prompt was one friend says um, so the Taliban when they denied women uh, access to higher ed right. recently. Sure. You know, one friend says I think that's wrong. Then the second friend says 
I agree that it's wrong, but these are just our opinions and the Taliban have a different opinion and it's not like we're objectively right and they're objectively wrong. And then the students are supposed to use the essay that we were reading by Mary Midgley. She believes in an objective moral right. standard. She does not believe in God, so right. she's one that she's grounds... an analytic view. Yeah, so she's one that grounds um, objective morality uh, not in God. I guess it's... I think she just takes it as a fundamental feature of reality, not grounded brute in anything. Fact. Yeah, brute fact. See, yeah, see, that's part... I don't... Yeah, okay, but I don't want to get hung up <laughs> on that. I don't find that plausible. Uh, like, the brute fact view. Eric Wielenberg has that view. It doesn't... It just does not... It's hard. It's very hard to argue. It goes against. back to Kant, right? Is it Kant was the Kant? Yeah, the one? yeah like that's yep. the brute fact. Yeah, Kant has this view too. You're correct. Um, Mavrodas, I might be saying his name wrong, but George Mavrodas, he has a very famous article uh, on, I think it's religion and the queerness of morality, and um, it's on this topic. And that article, I've always found it pretty convincing. It's he he's saying in that article that there's objective morality like in our minds and we're committed to it but reality itself isn't committed to objective morality in any deeper way beyond just us right because animals killing each other there's yeah. all kinds of like and insanity he going says on it's almost so it's, it's like it's real hanging there and there's a kind of absurdity then to to this situation where objective morality is real for us and we have to go to great lengths to obey it and give up a lot to obey it but reality itself isn't committed to objective morality and it does seem kind of like an absurd <laughs> situation and so he you know he's christian and he's saying so you know we should believe in god because then we're not stuck in this absurd situation and reality doesn't seem to be absurd it seems to be reasonable mm. um like we're all committed to reason working and and so why not think it works here too? And right. Um, but yeah, like people like Wielenberg and I guess, you know, this is Midgley's view too. I think they, they think it is just kind of objective morality is real. We're bound to it, but it's not grounded in anything further. And it's not like reality is committed to that. Got it's it. just, we are, right. uh, but yeah, it's, it's a hard, hard Wh thing to argue. Against. Why do you think that the, ch that this, this non-judgmentalism uber alles has become the dominant um it has gotten bigger over time i will say with students they used to be more like when i was i guess i started taing in 2002 and i've noticed yeah in the last 22 years of teaching um and interacting with students the n the the wariness of judging each other has gotten more and more and more and more it's weird because at the same time, our political situation has gotten more and more divisive and louder yelling at each other, but mostly online, not face-to-face. -face. Got it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's true. Which makes a difference because people are more willing to... Because uh, it can be anonymous, some bot. Yeah, like, there's you know, a distance. Hardvark123 online. Exactly. <laughs> yes, I don't... I Yeah, I don't know why this has happened. I just... I do think it has has happened i think that's a correct perception i want to throw a theory by you i want to i want you to tell me what you think is yeah. the reasoning i think there's a couple of things and this goes to the other question we wanted to get to but i think it can tie in which is that there is this from modern philosophy one of the main moves from descartes forward from cogito ergo sum mm -hmm. is an interiorization and what this has led to is an as a skepticism 
mm-hmm. about our ability to discern reality, a ability to have what you talked about earlier, this correspondence yeah. theory of truth. We no longer believe in truth. So okay. John Paul II talked about this. We're going to have a dictatorship of relativism mm. over time because what's yeah. going to happen is once you give up on this correspondence yeah. theory, then all you have is your own interior reality. That's sovereign. Yeah. As Charles Taylor would say, your buffered self. You don't, yeah. course, you don't connect with reality outside of your own. Yeah. And then you add in this kind of, let's say, psychological self, which is the only thing that matters is we, we were talking about earlier is your levels of dopamine and and mm-hmm. so that's right so now all we have is you in your little world me in my little world we no longer believe in the correspondence theory of truth we've given up on formal and final causality in aristotle that we can find right. determined purposes in the universe right and all this has led to is okay i don't want to bother you like i don't want to disturb yeah. your cocktail of chemicals yeah. in, your, in your brain and what would be the purpose of me doing so anyway? It's not like I um I can there's no truth. Right. I can't I can't discern anything really with my reason. Yeah. So like what's the upside? It's kind of like they what is that they call that the um uh the is it a Milgram's choice where it's like there's no ups it's like telling you know, telling s- there's no upside in saying the truth, like, like telling somebody they have bad breath. Mm, yeah, it's not like, like there's we're no, it's like, what's the upside in it? It's like, it just deal we're with not it. in the public domain thinking together, thinking this out. Right. Um, and that's the like, that's the that's the that's the positive take. The negative take is also that then all we have is will. So now yeah. it's all about me imposing my will because I don't believe, you know, I don't really believe no, that there's anything true. I can't reason with you. So it's and just I you. see that view where it's just sheer assertion of will against will and power against power. I mean, I t- in like really cynical moments, I start viewing the world in that way and then I have to snap myself out of it. But I see sometimes students that and I see it in papers sometimes that they have those moments, too. But then they like most people, they start to snap themselves out of it and say, no, no, we, we can do better than this. Reality isn't really that way. And we really can understand each other. And, and so like most of them on the objective morality paper, most of them do believe in of objective morality. Um, that is interesting. I thought yeah. that, I think that's an interesting now, case. but that this could be a Catholic, uni- Catholic college. Maybe. It could be an effect of the way I teach. Cause I think I'm sli- I try to be like with Mackie. I try to do a really good job of presenting his, arguments against objective morality and some do they get convinced by his views um i mean they were probably convinced ahead of time before i presented and then that confirmed for them but it's still at least 60 40 believe in objective morality i think what happens is they hear things like if you don't believe in objective morality you can't say slavery is objectively wrong and for them that just goes you can't judge moral progress yeah and you can't judge moral progress and that just goes too far for them and like the taliban example with women in education For them, that just goes too far. You have to say it's okay in principle to rape and murder young children. Like yeah, you, have you to say, say I can't. Okay. I can't criticize them. Right. <laughs> like you say, so, so that gets absurd. What do you think of this? Um, my my diagnosis or hypoth- hypothetical diagnosis I as do, sort of like a yeah. I do think there is something to that because the you know I guess when I read. I lo- let me start by saying I love Descartes' meditations because it's so. Um, for students, it's wonderful because it's so accessible. It's mm. just like him in his bathrobe sitting with a candle and going day by day. And the way he writes is so easy to follow. So it's like a wonderful, wonderful way into uh, philosophy. Um, 
Yeah, and he did not intend, obviously, in writing that to do this thing where each individual sort of retreats into themselves and then they're cut off from everyone else. But that has, I, th- I think you're right that that has been an effect of that sort of move um, because, you know, he was at the start of the scientific revolution and it's sort of, this is natural science as we think of it now was just starting then to be that way where you've got the you've got the particles and the matter and the energy and the forces and the laws of nature but they're all viewed in sort of like value neutral terms mind is excluded like you can't give explanations that refer to mindedness it has to just be you know like when we took physics and chemistry yep. in, in in high school and you got all those equations like force equals mass times acceleration there are no value references nothing no nothing's good or bad it's just indifferent and then and you, even though it's got like numbers and equations, and so it's it looks mental. None of it makes any explicit or essential reference to mind. So mind is sort of separated out from all of that. So you've got the physical world, but then you know he he's thinking of your mind as an immaterial soul, separate from all the the physical stuff. And yeah, so then you're not as embedded in this natural world anymore and you are kind of uh, detached from it um and then yeah the relationship between the two is hard to explain at that point um but the psychological effects of sort of separating yourself out which is what you were getting at i think that is part we we in t- in in our culture today in 2024 in the western world i think we do view ourselves as individual cells with these rich interiors, but then, and that's great. Um, but then, yeah, it's hard to get in touch with other people's <laughs> rich interiors. <laughs> we, yeah. And so we, the individualism right. has gone so far. It's out of balance. That, yeah, now we can't connect anymore and we don't view ourselves as having shared reason um, in the same way that, you know, they did during the medieval period. Um, now, before, you know, Augustine and Plato, so if you go back even further, they, their their connection to matter was always a little bit, like with Plato, I mean, if you read the Phaedo, he, he thinks he's like a, right. a mind slash soul trapped in a, a body that's a prison, you right, know. Right. Um, uh, you know, Augustine was a little bit uh, more sort of positive. Almost a Gnostic view, right? It's yeah. like this sort of, uh, this idea that, well, there's this this fallen matter that's not great, but there's this spirit that this inner consciousness, mm-hmm. this inner spirit that's good, that's the real me. Mm-hmm. You know, that's uh, um, then the late the church. There's that combo. I think the church is very has this like that on the pl- Platonic and Aristot on um, Augustinian view that sort of more. Uh, then the other side would be the Aristotelian Thomistic yeah, thing, thing, which view. is no actually. There it's a tighter yeah, connection. It's a tighter connection with it's reality. Yeah. Essence and form come together. Yeah, in matter, right? The hylomorphism. The it church sort of moved more in that direction. It's funny because in like analytic philosophy, uh, you know, the two main views are substance dualism of like the Cartesian sort, and then mind body, and then yeah, and then physicalism. And people have trouble even understanding Aquinas' hylomorphism because it's a substance dualist view. Um, Which is what? What is the substance dualist view? The uh, Descartes got it. Okay, Descartes. so by mind body separation. Yeah, and we're the we're identical to the um, consciousness. Yeah, the immaterial mind. Um, that seems to be Descartes. Some people interpret him as saying, 
that the body is essential. Um, but I don't know when I, when I read Descartes, maybe it depends on the passage, but anyway, when we say Cartesian in philosophy, what we usually mean is you're just identical to the immaterial mind and you have a body attached to you, but the body's not essential to you. Right. And you can exist without it and so on. But then with Aquinas, it's like Descartes because there is an (laughs) immaterial soul. Um, but the body is supposed to be essential to you. And he even thinks like when you're the separated soul before the resurrection of the body. So say you, you die and your soul goes up to heaven, right? but your body's still in the grave. Um, but then the end of the world will come and your soul will, um, be the glorified body. body. Yeah. Your glorified body will then join your soul. The question is, what are you like? Are you there when your soul's up there separated from your body? Or is that just your soul there? Like as right. a placeholder until your body. Aquinas with the soul thing is odd. It's like the, the body is the, the soul is the form of the body. Yeah. It's like, the, I, I still, I'm well, like, and it goes back to Aristotle, Aristotle, these substantial forms are like, they're in the organisms. So mm-hmm. if you think of leave aside artifacts, cause they're, I, I don't think when I interpret him, I don't really think the forms were in the artifacts. Um, I could be wrong in interpreting them that way. But if you just look at animals, he definitely, Aristotle definitely thought there are these forms um, in there with the matter and they organize the matter. So like the my dog, Archie, who's a newfie, <laughs> there'd be like, he's got all his matter, but then there's some kind of dog form. That right. That which would be like the Plato's forms, right? Like the the, the form yeah, of a dog. Yeah, except they're not. Yeah, except right, they're not, not there, up they're in conceptual right. space. They're right. inside Archie right, right. and organizing the matter to make it into a dog, and then also directing him to Got do it. things that dogs do characteristically, like to dig. So for Plato, would it be the only real form of a dog is the abstract form yes. in the world of forms, and all we have here are pale instantiations of this. Correct. Whereas Aristotle would say, no, actually, the form. And the matter combined, combined. that's the formal right. cause yeah. of a particular thing, like yes. of, of Archie. They're that's joined together. Cause. The essence and the um, the matter and the form come together. In yeah, way? Is they're that composites the joined the together. Okay. And then as applied to the human, and Aquinas thought this, is you've got a human form. Right. <laughs> so you'd have Andrew, Jacoby, would have, you'd have a human form. I'd have a human form. It's really the same human form. It's, I mean, they're numerically distinct. Like you have yours and I have mine. So there are two of them, not just one, but qualitatively they're identical. They're got the it. exact same. Yeah, exactly. And what makes us different individually is, is, um, our matter according right. to, according to Aquinas and that, but it, so it is substance dualism. It, it does have this view that we're, immaterial um and material um but it's a little different than descartes because it's a tighter connection between the material stuff and the immaterial stuff and so we're less we're not as much buffered selves from so if if that makes sense we're not as cut off and yeah i think with aquinas you do see it is more public and there's less talk of i and i mean he does say i answer that in all the i don't know if you ever read aquinas but where it's you know, he lays out the uh, um, objections, and then he says, and then the on the contrary, and then he says the I answer that section. Um, in the Summa Theologica. Yeah, in the Summa Theologica. And then, you know, and then he answers the objections, but he doesn't say I much. He doesn't say, like, well, here's my specific view. Um, right. There isn't much assertion of individualism. Um, 
I mean, obviously he has his opinions and his views and he's dialoguing with all these other people who have their opinions and views. But, um, yeah, he didn't seem to focus as much on individualism as we do. Um, and I think in some ways I'm more of like, a. I get caught between these two worlds. Like my view of well-being, which is a hybrid of the objectivist theory and the desire theory it's because I'm trying to combine this sort of the good parts of individualism and subjective fulfillment Got it. with this. Right. How do you marry them? Which right. is a very Catholic thing. Both yes. ends. So yeah. Both ends. And, and, you know, I've convinced no one, of course, <laughs> because it's hard to marry those two. Right. Because you can desire disordered things. Right. And you so can legitimately desire them. Like, and oh, you could absolutely. be convinced that it's good. Yeah. No, my view, you know, Safely the rules. Example, the Nazi yes, rally right. example. Yeah, so a pure desire theory I find implausible for reasons like that. My view, on my view, for something to add to your well-being, it has to be both objectively good for you in this perfectionist sense, sense of fulfilling your human nature, um, that that human nature that you and I share in common, but then it also has to fulfill a desire you have. Mm. Um, so a desire for something bad it can't add to your well-being, on my view. Um, only desires for the good things. Got it. The so worry we do have disordered desires. It's possible. Oh yeah, right. I say you yeah. can. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have lots of them. So. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> can't go through a day without one. <laughs> but that's why I'm good at rationalization. So. Um, <laughs> They're pretty handy. Yeah. <laughs> the worry about a view like mine is that if you don't desire the things that perfect your human nature then my view says well, then the things that perfect your human nature aren't part of your well-being so your project is the attempt to take the to try to marry the older view of happiness as being a life of virtue yes as aristotle correct. would That's say sort of aristotelian of a yes. life of virtue pursued amongst friends mm -hmm. would be the sort of aristotelian view of eudaimonia more or less mm -hmm. life of virtue and then you're trying to say okay but at the same time it's important that we fulfill some of our desires as well. As in, yeah. Yeah, the thought, here's one way. What's additive there? Okay, so one thought is, you know, this is sort of trite, but I think also helpful. At some level, you look at all of us, humans throughout the world, throughout history, we're the same. And so how so? Well, we have, one way is you look at Aristotle and, say we've got we've got this human form or human nature that we share in common and it directs us towards certain ends yeah like friendship and knowledge and physical health things these things all seem to be perfective of human nature or completing of us as humans um and i admit that even if you don't want any of those things they add to your perfection as a human being and that has normative force like i think those are things that have some kind of real value that you ought to pursue in life. But it, to me, it's not quite the same as well-being be, well because mm -hmm. uh, I think of that as slightly more personal. Um, uh, and that's where I think desires come into play. So the strength with which you desire those things matters, and that um, impacts the ordering that those things have in terms of how much they add to your well-being. I also, I think just as a matter of, fact people just overwhelmingly and almost invariably do want those things like if you ask somebody you pin them down you're like do you really want friendship 
almost all of them end up saying, yeah. <laughs> saying yes. Do you want physical? So you're health? gonna want. You're gonna. W- your wants are gonna correlate to things that are ultimately virtuous. Essentially, like at least that's part what of I'm them. trying to Got yeah it. go for. So that your so your marriage then is not an additive thing. You're not saying like what you're saying is that if you examine your desires and you take the subset that are disordered that we can agree are disordered like Nazi rallies mm-hmm. and things like that then basically what you desire is what's good for you. Yes. If you screen out all the bad ones, <laughs> right. then, then you can desire, yeah, you desire elements of, of the perfection of you as a human being. Um, and then well-being would itself be a function of those two things. It'd be the amount of perfectionist value contained in the object. Um, and then it, the strength with which you desire it. Got it. I'm curious. The so this is there when you s- we talked about your because one of your specialties is this um, philosophy of well-being. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we should step back just and sort of define what that is. <laughs> is the define like because I never until I read your your profile I'd yeah. never even heard of okay. it. And I'm not an academic no, that's philosopher, a great, but great question. So define the term. What we agree on is that to speak of someone's well-being is to speak of um, what's in itself good for them. By in itself, I mean good for them as an end and not as just a me- like. If I um, take the medicine that tastes bad, you know, people would say that it's not like uh, drinking the medicine is itself good for you. Rather, it's the the healing that comes from the medicine that adds to well-being. So we're, we're the, the debate, w- well-being isn't what's good for you just instrumentally. Um, it's good is what's good for you as an end in its own right. Okay. Like money, most people think of as just an instrumental good. It's not. Can't eat it. Yeah, you can't eat it. It's like you could hold the $20 in your hand, but that that's not what's adding to your well-being, the sheer, sheer having of it. It's what you can do with it or or convert it it. to right yeah convert it to or the security that feeling the good feeling that it brings that might add to it but not just the bare having of it um so the debates over what are the ends that constitute well-being and then that's where you get these different theories like hedonists they think there's just the one thing and that's the positive affect and avoiding negative affect right the the experience machine yes just just get as close to that get as close to that as possible and you're good right (laughs) this is like the guys that are walking around microdosing lsd all day and sort of like i feel good all the time i'm kind of a little bit a little bit funky and then you know in between my ayahuasca trips i just do a little <laughs> micro dosing right. and I'm always kind of everything's enchanted all the time <laughs> yeah I mean so, that, so that's one answer and right. smart drugs um another is the desire theory they you know which has a diff- bunch of different variants but they think well-being consists in getting what you what you want um and then the objective list theories many of which are Aristotelian not all of them but for most in philosophy these days, I feel like that's the inspiration is Aristotle. And they come up with some list that they think corresponds to, um, you know, all humans throughout time and place. And says these are the items that benefit humans. And usually the lists, they contain what you would think they would contain. It's like friendship, knowledge, health, uh, accomplishment, um, things like that. They, they do slightly disagree about what's on the one true list. Like there are disagreements among objective list theorists about what exactly that list contains. Right. But they all agree that there is some one true list. They just, even if they can't quite agree on what's on it. Um, And then, you know, and then you get other views, like my hybrid view and there are other hybrid theorists too. I've noticed not hybrid theorists in general. It's usually 
not desire an objective list. It's usually um, enjoyment an objective list. So I don't know. I don't know why my I don't know why I find desire much more plausible than enjoyment. But why is that? I, why I, do you think? I do. Um, I guess I just think there can be things that are good for you, even though you don't enjoy. Like I often have mildly negative affect, but but think in general, your your state in general yeah, is like kind of grouchy. Think that I'm. I mean, hopefully I'm outwardly nice enough, but like. Um, like if I'm writing or teaching or something, I'm often, my affect is mildly negative, but I still think as long as what I'm doing is worthwhile, you know, and I want to do it, then my well-being is going forward. So I guess I'm viewing, no, if I'm in major pain, that's different. But right. I mean mildly negative affect that if you're, if you have an, an, any view, whether it's hedonistic or whether it's a hybrid view that involves enjoyment, You'd have to say that at those moments, I'm not gaining in well-being, but at those moments, I do think I'm gaining in well-being. Say I'm right. teaching and my affect is mildly negative, but I think it's going well. Right. Right. In terms of well, you're on the uh, treadmill. Exactly. This sucks. Yeah, <laughs> like your running is not fun or what. So, yeah, I would say, well, look, I want to do it. It's a worthwhile thing. Um, so the two conditions that I think matter for well-being are met. And then, so why not say I'm better off? <laughs> right, right. So it's it's a it's it's in contra to the idea that the only thing that matters is d a sort of calculation of serotonin and dopamine. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that those people that insist on that are, have an inherent? Is there an inherently materialistic view there? Like meaning that it's the the, the combination is the brain versus mind. Well, I like will say I haven't met too many theistic hedonists i mean right. there are i do uh stuart getz is a philosopher um at ursinus around here yeah, I've heard of, yeah. where is ursinus where is that coming? it's not that far. i think co collegeville maybe yeah okay. um he's a great philosopher and he's actually a hedonist about well-being so but that's oh, we where gotta get him on the show yeah no you could get him on the show yeah no he'd, he'd, maybe, be, uh, he'd, he'd be a very good interview great. he's he, uh he's smart smart guy um but that's rare. There aren't very many Christian hedonists or theistic hedonists in general. Um, and yeah, you could ask him why, because that is an unusual uh, yeah, view. Yeah, it's, it's an odd. Yeah, it's an odd way to to go. You would think. Because yeah, like, the, what, what about the cross? <laughs> no, you know, the question. mystery of the cross. Yeah, good question. You know, I mean, I guess he'd say that that was, yeah, Jesus was not in a state of well-being at that moment, but was doing what was morally right. That he would make that distinction. Oh, yeah, he would. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he thinks justice is a real good. It's just not a good that, uh, you know, directly adds to well-being. Got it. Um, Interesting. I wanted, I'm curious. I you Another thing that was listed on your, um, on your profile at Chestnut Hill College was the philosophy of American philosophy. Oh, yeah. Now, I have not taught that class in a while, um, but I did. Yeah, what, I have taught it before. What is that? What would you say? Is it, is it well, pragmatism? Is yeah, it a lot of the people we read. Yeah, we William did. We James. read William James and Dewey. Um, we read some of C.S. Um, is it, I forget Pierce's first name, but we read some Pierce. I think it's C.S. I'm not. I'm, don't quote me on that. But yeah, James, Dewey, Pierce. We read mostly James because he's the easiest to read. <laughs> so what were you reading three. of William James? The uh, experience. What is it called? The Variety of Religious Experience. Yeah, we didn't really read that one Very too much. Book. Um, he had. He, I mean, he's written so much, but yeah, um, we read on his views on free will. Um, 
We read some of his views on pragmatism on truth. Um, what is that? How would you describe his? I don't know enough of my. <laughs> well, this is. I don't know if I taught that course very well, to be honest, because I still have. Tr- I think I said this earlier in the interview, like because I think I have such strong correspondence theory of truth intuitions right. that I have difficulty understanding like pragmatic views of right. truth because they all start out with uh, with a contradiction, which it, is it, that there is no truth or we can't know. Truth yeah, the, it's <laughs> all. It always uh, turns into well, what works. Truth is what works. Um, uh, Very American idea. Yeah. I mean, I love the way William James writes. He's a great writer. It's fun to read. It's lively. But yeah, when it's the pragmatism about truth thing, I had trouble grasping what you know what, the, what, is what, the, what this really meant. And I don't think I did a very good job of explaining it. Um, so, Would you say that the, pragmati- the American philosophy as a as a school is a pragmatic philosophy is that kind of that's what we're known for because we don't really have you know this same long tradition that continental philosophy or anglo yeah but that was the one thing that kind of like stuck from the history of american philosophy um yeah james and dewey and pierce um we read Jane Addams too. She was interesting for you know, Whole House in Chicago. Um, it was like to help the poor in Chicago. At the, I, uh, the exact time period, I don't know if I can remember, maybe 1900 about. And um, she was interesting because it was a lot of like social activism, but she she mixed it in with like pragmatism and philosophy. Um, and we read Lincoln. I can't remember why I thought that was justified in a philosophy class to read Abraham. Smart Lincoln. guy. But we did. We re- I think I was trying to lead into sort of like the social setting at the time before um, Pierce and James and Dewey. Um, and that was that was it. I, I, I can't, yeah, I can't remember I mean, there why. There's but interesting, it, um, there were a lot Dunklin of debates. Those are interesting yeah. debates. The idea right. of, well, okay, we're a democracy in a certain way, but if everybody, you know, Douglas's point was, well, you know, yeah, if no. they want to vote and the new states want to vote for slavery, yeah, we and this say no. Like I remember that part Lincoln of the was course. More of a natural law kind of no. Right. The students. You can't vote for that. Like, that's not a thing you can vote for. The students found Lincoln interesting. You know what it was? Now I can remember. Is John Stuart Mill wrote some long article on the Civil War. Um, it was kind of in the middle of the war, and he had a lot of predictions, and almost every single one of them turned out to be true. Wow. <laughs> so it was, it was he was like foreseeing the future, the future when he wrote the article. Um, and I think that had was a massive influence in the United States. Yeah, J.S. Mill. Yeah, huge. Even though not American. Right. Right. So I think that was how I justified it as as philosophical. <laughs> we read that that's, and then read some Lincoln. That's an interesting point. This million point of like that freedom is this idea. Cause this, we talked about happiness. So now to go to freedom, freedom being basically my ability to do whatever I want. Yeah. Like the, right. Like just experiments in living. Like who are uh, you to yeah, tell yeah. this? We go back. Oh, this gets back to the non-judgmental thing. This right. is a million thing. Yeah. Well, I, look, who am I to tell you that your experiments in living are right. wrong or disordered in any way? Because this utilitarian point is, well, the greatest good for the greatest number would be you leaving me alone to do what I want to do. Yeah. As long as I'm not actively hurting you, like punching you in the face right. or whatever. Yeah, and I do think that's our you think first. there's a part of of that coming in at least in a american context yeah um and i do think that's how most of us think of freedom 
at first is it's this yeah it's just being able to do whatever we want um and then we start thinking about it more and we're like mm, i don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> that doesn't seem to it certainly doesn't seem to lead to a great sense of being free if you just follow out you know whatever your you desires. want yeah um, we have another podcast in our ministry is which is um um from kensington with love so we're just down in kensington we film in kensington oh, wow. and um yeah, if you—that's the view of freedom. That that—that's where that oh, leads, right? Yeah. Do whatever you want. Hey, they are the, the it, under that view, those people living on the street injecting heroin in broad right. daylight are the freest people yeah. in the world because yeah. nobody's even stopping them right. from smoking from crack that, yeah. or selling their bodies or yeah. whatever. So under that, that's the end game of the freedom is do whatever you want view. Right. So if that's true. What's the value of freedom? Right. It doesn't seem to be quite what we're looking for. I get so puzzled. But I mean, I'm a libertarian about free will. I think we can do otherwise than we do. Um, I mean, most 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 Catholics are. Um, but there are all these strange things, like theistically, when you think about it, like because we tend to think of um, God as not being quite free in the same way we are, because we don't we we don't just have the freedom to do good or right. We also have the freedom to do he evil or bad. Right. He, he doesn't, do that. right? Right, because he's bound by his nature. And then also we tend to think in heaven. Well, Aquinas anyway doesn't think we'll have the same kind of freedom because we'll be so like I guess we'll just be the beatific vision will be so overwhelming that all we'll want to do is immediately connect to God and then nothing else can even be done. I think uh, Schopenhauer also had this thing where he was saying that like we have this one thing that the gods don't have or God doesn't have, which is the ability to sui- suicide. Oh, suicide! We can yeah, kill yeah, ourselves. yeah, yeah. God can't kill himself. Yeah, we can kill ourselves. It's our yeah. one power that we have over the. Oh, yeah. The supernatural. I mean, it is weird once you start thinking about whether God could kill himself. It's like, <laughs> I know, because I remember doing that once, and I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think that actually, there's it's in one, Guy Kahan, he's, he wrote, I was reading some article he wrote where he was talking about that issue, and I hadn't thought about that in many, many years. And then I started thinking about it again. It's it's a weird thing to think. It's like w- if you ever start thinking about living literally forever, like eternally, like you just never die, like you know, it would have the to transhuman. Be... These people that want to no, I mean like in an afterlife setting. I, d- I, d- I just mean like literally, you just never die. That's also a weird. Like you get this weird feeling once you start thinking about. I mean, I believe it, but it's a really weird thing. Right. Once right. you start, because we're also we're we're conditioned to think of eternal as a sort of temporal time based thing. Right. If, you know, or it's it might might you know be above what our ability to conceive of it because that we're temp we're so right. we're so sort of indoctrinated in the temporal in temporal reality we can't conceive of it outside. Yeah. Whereas like you know. Anyway, but that's that's <laughs> a, I'm, so okay. So this this freedom idea. What I, what the the other the alternative view for the we didn't to finish that yeah to close that loop. The alternative view would be freedom is the ability to do the good right. essentially right yeah. to be able to discipline yourself to um, inculcate the virtues in your life in such a mm-hmm. way that you can do what's good for you. Yeah, that's true freedom. Right. That's right. That's yeah. Kant seems to have that view. Aquinas seems to have that view. Um, I mean, standard Catholic teaching is that view. It's. And do you think that there's do you think that the I mean, 
I was just reading this. I just finished this book by Ed Fazer, who's one of my favorite. He's the guy that yeah, introduced me to. Yeah, he's a good. To he's a, he's a, a good Thomas. philosopher. Yeah, Thomas. Yeah, amazing. He's, he's read a great book called the uh, The Last Superstition. He wrote it a bunch of years ago in in response to the new atheist thing. And his his basic point in this book was that essentially it's the revenge of Aristotle. Like mm. we've given up on form one final causality. Okay. So we are not willing to reason. It's all matter mm. in motion in the okay. modern world. We're okay. not willing to reason about the ends of mm. human life. We're not willing to reason about um, ends in nature that we can determine with our minds, that we can reason about, yeah. especially in things that, that, that uh, interact with our will, things like sexuality, for yeah. example, right? Like yeah. so you, you start talking about the church's teaching on sexuality and people are just like... it their minds blow. So yeah, like, right. like gaskets start like, no, I know you can, know. you can see like smoke coming out of their ears. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? This right. makes no sense. And you can see it because if you walk people through, um, the reasoning, the same, same reasoning, but about their eyes, for example, okay, what are mm. your eyes for? Okay. Well, how do you know that they're for that? Well, right. nothing else sees they see. Yeah. Therefore, I know they're ordered towards seeing. Mm-hmm. And if I wake up and I can't see, yeah. I know that there's something wrong. But right. if you go anywhere near the sexual organs with the same kind of reasoning, oh, no, no, no. We can't know anything. There's nothing yeah. we can know. There's nothing we can determine about purposes. There's nothing. Do you, what, is, what are your thoughts on this, this, this idea of... of um, so I guess this could go back to, I mean, your point about Descartes. I know with Descartes, at the beginning of the scientific revolution, I think Aristotle, yeah, and formal ends, um, formal causes had such a grip on the way scholars worked at that time that there was such a strong reaction against it to try to get the ideas of the scientific revolution going. Um, Why would Aristotle's view be in contra to that? I don't know. I mean, I guess... I mean, if you're if you're it's think, not purely materialist. No, it's not. Yeah, that's part of it. Is you if you have this form matter distinction, then what's the form? Uh, it's not. Where does matter. that come from? Yeah, it's yeah. weird. It comes from some weird. Yeah, and so it is mysterious. And yeah, if you want to make things easier to measure um, and a little less mysterious, uh, and focus on you know, sensation and the empirical, um, then you get, get rid of those forms, uh, at least when you're doing science and, or natural science. And so Descartes and yeah, a lot of people with the scientific revolution, they were just trying to make sure they got that out of science. Um, and then can't put it under a microscope, right? Can't put it under a microscope. And then the question, I guess, is then what happens with the way we think of ourselves, yeah, morally or in terms of well-being or just ethically in general um, and how to live in these normative questions. Um, yeah, it does kind of go back to what you said is you sort of retreat inward <laughs> into this. Yeah, and then so it, it's it makes not me out feel there good. in the public domain Therefore. and yeah, and you can't reason about it in the same way. But we're so conflicted because you still see like I was telling you with my students, that I'd say at least 60%, they do believe in objective morality. And they'll admit you, it's not a standard you can see. Um, it's not a physical standard, but it's still real and it still governs their lives and they still believe in it. Um, now, some don't. So And they believe they can discern it with their own and reason. And they do believe they can discern it. They think they, with their own so reason. So there's hope. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, there's there's hope. definitely hope. Yeah. 
That's great to hear because yeah. you know, it's easy to despair looking out at the world, especially yeah. with young people. It's like, well, we can't yeah. know anything. What do you, ta- you know what I mean? What do you mean? There's just the yeah. only principle that exists is non-judgmentalism. <laughs> that's <laughs> it. Like, so we take it. all of moral <laughs> reasoning. We take all of reason in general about human beings and their good. And yeah. the only thing that we can say is I, I can't have an opinion about anything in the human good because yeah. it might hurt somebody's feelings. The sort of emotivism, yeah, like that's the only thing that matters. Is if I if I make if I make professor upset, mm-hmm. then I, it must have been bad. That's yeah, it. you know. So it's good to know that there's you know. Oh yeah, no, there's some hope. there's definitely hope. The revenge of Aristotle will come. Back. <laughs> Aristotle <laughs> will come back. Yeah, because I'm well curious. I, I think because there's this there's this at least among young men there's this huge revival in Stoicism. People love. Yeah, the I've Stoic. noticed that in it's wider like culture. Thing. Yeah, I'm in the entrepreneurial world, and that's a huge thing funny. in that world. It's yeah, like, I know in Silicon yeah. Valley they are tough all it into out it too. Yeah, so I'm curious. I'm like, well, why couldn't we have a revival of Aristotelian virtue ethics. It may like happen. I mean, this happen? We'll it see. Needs to be sold. Social movements and philosophical movement—they're hard to explain. Like, what? You know, why do they get a grip? And sometimes it just takes like a few people, and some of them are that are good at explaining it, and that you know, and then and then the next thing you know, it's it's passed through students who are then sort of spreading it. And so, I do think these things. You know, a lot of it is just up to us and our efforts and so on. I think the stoic thing, uh, my theory on it, is that it's a reaction to this emotivism. Yeah. It's a reaction against this. No, emotion's nothing. You mm. don't, don't let it. Interesting. Don't let yeah. it in. You know, it's just your mind. Yeah. If you don't, you know, the obstacle is the way. Who cares? Do what you're, you know, just just ignore that. If you don't see it as yeah. a harm, it's no harm to you. Don't let yeah. anything, deter, you know, stir your sort of Roman, you know, mm-hmm. like focus and and uh, when i was in grad school nancy sherman she's a georgetown and she she um would i would i ta'd for her and some of the course was on the stoics and i mean it is an interesting philosophy i always viewed it as too detached from you know because it to me it doesn't seem honest to say like it doesn't really matter if i'm sick (laughs) or it it doesn't really matter if my friend (laughs) is going through a horrible time and has cancer all that matters is that i'm acting well on the inside and i have my virtue to fall back on and so on yeah i think it's inhuman yeah it's almost inhuman yeah and i can see why as a coping mechanism it's very effective like if you can actually make yourself believe it but yeah, the worry is that then you'd be dead to the world, and I don't know. To me, that doesn't seem like that's how we're supposed to be. Uh, right. Supposed to live. Seems like a, a move against this emotionalism in a certain yeah. way, and maybe a corrective. And it, go, it can go yeah. too far, as you said, but yeah, it's a nice sort of saying, far. like, "Hey, enough right. of this. Right. There is more of this uh, to the world than how you feel. The yeah. sentimentality of the world, since whatever. I mean, that's another. I think another consequence of." Um, Let's say the, and this will be controversial. This isn't your view. My okay. view would be yeah, that yeah. it's uh, that it's let's say the um, uh, the movement into the public realm of feminism, the the march of the sort of the feminine, which might have been a, a corrective because it had gone too far in one direction, but now perhaps it's mm-hmm. spun too far in the other direction, where it's all about emotion, the effective, how I feel, how I'm making you feel at every moment. Yeah. I'm not saying this is an imp- important the anima. But okay. there's also the animus. There's also the male. There's oh both. Yeah, yeah. And so a balance of the two. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
is is important and perhaps the stoic thing is an attempt as a corrective attempt to get us back to, to the middle yeah, where it's sort of like yeah emotions are important we probably underrepresented their importance the internal affective experience mm-hmm. was Im- was was probably for a long time ignored to a certain extent um now it's it's everything and that's all it, that has its own um, if that gets out of balance in that way it has its own problems right yeah, the subjective... Which would be the ignor- ignoring reason. Right. Yeah. No, and it, it's it's true. The the subjective response to things, It's maybe as a society we've gone too far into... Like if somebody makes a, uh, I don't know, some sort of trivial comment and maybe they didn't think it through, but it was hurtful to their friend, um, but the intention was not to hurt. Um, but the friend's subjective experience of it was tremendous hurt. Yeah. Then if they come back and say, well, I know, you know, objectively speaking what you did and I know what your intentions were, et cetera, but here was my experience on the inside. Now, on the one hand, obviously their experience on the inside does matter and they're hurt and so on. And we do need to acknowledge that, but we also, we can't just ignore the fact that the intention was not to hurt the person or the, you know, that the, like the objective fact of whatever the action was can't be ignored and can't put all the weight on the subjective. Sure. Um, and also if the, if the idea is to will the good, s- will their yeah. good might need to hurt them in the short term. Hey, right, professor, yeah. you got a drinking problem. <laughs> like, or what I mean, you don't, but I mean like, you know, Hey, you like, you shouldn't dip. I, yeah. I care about you. You yeah. know, like, I know it's fun for you to dip, but like you shouldn't do yeah. that. And that might piss you off. You might be like, hey, no, yeah. I mean, there are definitely times you have to hurt people in the short, like students. Yeah. Sometimes if they just, if it's, you know, a student that just doesn't do their work, there's not much I can do. I'm going to, you know, and they come to me at the end and they want to pass. I, you know, I might not have a choice. I might just have to tell them, even though I know it's going to hurt them. Well, I'm sorry, but yeah, you didn't <laughs> you make just, it. You, you didn't, didn't do, do it. The work. Right. You know, and that's, yeah, I know it's going to hurt them, but I also know it's, that's that's the way things are. Um, yeah, it's like the Dostoevsky love is a was it a terrible thing? Like it's a really difficult and terrible thing. It's really hard sometimes mm-hmm. to. W- 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 uh, I will your good even if it's worse for me. Meaning you'll yeah. do because if you love that student, you have to tell them even if they hate you, even if they start writing all kinds of you know bad things about <laughs> you online or whatever. Yeah, fortunately our students usually don't do things right. But like I mean, that. but, but yeah, in general, if if it, yeah. Or like if you're my friend and I say, hey, you know, I don't, I, I know that you love this heroin stuff, but I think it's really bad right. for you. And I'm, by the way, I'm not going to give you any more money when you ask yeah. me, you right. know, and I'm not going to let you sleep on my couch anymore because I think that it's bad for you to do to live this way. And because I love you, I'm locking the door right. and you're not going to come into my house Yeah, and I'm not going to give you any money. Right. And that would that might piss you off. <laughs> like we you right. might end our friendship, ba- quote unquote, friendship based on. Yeah. That. But if I love you, I have to do have that to regardless do of like the... That. So that kind of thing. Yeah. No, that do you think that's sense. off base or do you think that there, there's something there? What? No, that sounds right to me. Um, yeah, I get it. But is stoicism a reaction to... Like, is it a corrective to emphasizing the interior experience too much, you know, in a way that's divorced from whatever objectively happened? It might be. I hadn't thought of it that way. I always thought of it just as a coping mechanism. <laughs> like, no, because I'll try to do it sometimes to myself um, as a coping mechanism. It usually it just doesn't work. It never works. I, for me, it doesn't work because I can't convince myself that, say, 
it doesn't matter if I'm sick or it doesn't matter if, you know, my friend's going through a horrible time or whatever. Yeah, like, because totally. to me, it's just, I end up thinking, well, it does matter. And, and I'm sad about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, my method has always just been to use it as a coping mechanism, um, which, you know, the pragmatism thing there, it, that's like a, a, a move that pragmatists will sometimes, it's where they're not so much concerned with truth. They're more concerned with, doing something that works um, how does that relate to that moment so like w- william james sometimes when he talks about doing what works it would be it would be something like that so it's not concerned so much with truth it's more concerned with like finding a, a mechanism to get through a situation now it might be an individual situation it might be a social situation or whatever um but and i guess there are things we do pragmatically like little psychological tricks we play on ourselves I don't know. Like if if a uh, if you were going through a bad breakup or something, and then instead of like uh, focusing on all the good qualities of the of the woman, you you told yourself just repeated over and over. But here were the like the downsides of her or something like right, that. Right. And you know it's not quite true. It's not the but whole picture, inco- but you're yeah, doing yeah. it because this helps you cope. Right, you know, it and works. like, yeah, it's it works. So it's you're like so at the fr- front of the line of the race, and you're telling yeah. yourself, "I have a really good chance to beat this guy." When you don't, but yeah, like if, but if you, and right. sometimes I think, yeah, maybe pragmatism it has a little bit of like value there, and maybe stoicism if it's viewed just as pragmatism and not as a truth right. theory. Right, because if you were rational, you'd never be an entrepreneur. You'd never start a business. <laughs> <laughs> if you're rational, your chances are it not is good. It's pretty tough. Well, it's yeah, 95% fail within fail. the first five Aww. years or something. Crazy. Yeah, I know with restaurants that... that they're even worse. That's the worst yeah. business. Don't ever start a restaurant. Yeah, <laughs> I have a brother-in-law who does food trucks, and he, oh, that's a little bit better. Yeah, you know, he it's gone, it's gone well. You can at least go somewhere where the it's demand well. is. Yeah, I think that's what it is. He ha- he's mobile, so he can right. You yeah. can go somewhere. Yeah, so. but it's a der- ter- super hard business because you buy a bunch of stuff. You have to guess how much you're going to buy. Yeah, and then it all goes bad, and you got to throw it away. In the yeah, next, and that's true. Right, it's just really hard to yeah. to manage your inventory. It's a very difficult business to manage your inventory. And you're dealing with a lot of cash, and people are stealing that cash, and then you're dealing with alcohol, and a lot of times, and it's just no. uh, can get mixed up. But um, anyway, f- uh, professor, I really appreciate your time. I don't, I don't want to take up your whole day. I know you have to teach in the the <laughs> rest of your day, but I've really appreciated um, you spending the time and trying to help me and people, anybody listening, sort of work through these really deep questions um of uh i would say of a religious nature they might you know might not everybody might not come to religious conclusions about them mm-hmm. but there are certainly questions of like augusta del noche would say of the religious dimension of life yeah the, the deepest questions how do we know what it is to be human about the human good about right and wrong and these right. things i think people are very confused about them and so i really appreciate your efforts today to help us to yeah. uh, unconfuse ourselves a <laughs> well, little bit. I don't know if I succeeded, but yeah, no, I enjoyed it. Well, so. um, the uh, the intent was there. We did our That's best. That's right. The intent we was there. We, w- we toiled in the fields. Yes. And so that was it. So anyway, I'll, I'll sign off and thank you. I hope we can maybe do a part two. Yeah. And we'll, uh, we'll, c- we'll come up with some uh, some further questions. <laughs> but yeah. But it was great. That's thank great. you so much, Bob. Sure. Thanks.